Um, good morning. And just before I start, um, I'd hope you'd indulge me with just a couple of quick remarks that have nothing to do with today's sermon, because I know we have a few visitors here. I just want to make it clear uh, that I am uh, not, a, not an ordained minister, I'm not a vicar, uh, and therefore I'm a pharmacist, which as I always say is much better than being a vicar. Um, but um, if you don't like it, don't blame the vicar. Come and hear him at any of our services, including Easter Sunday. I am also uh, the church warden. And since I've now done unbelievably six years, I just want to take the opportunity, Church of England thinks that six years is a good time to uh, step down. Um, I just want to take the opportunity to thank all the church for all the different ways in which they serve and all the different ways in which they've supported myself and Pam, myself and Sheila and myself and Angie. Uh, and you've all been great, especially during our year, two years ago of interregnum, when we uh, were diminished in our leadership um, by, by the time between uh, pastors. And finally, sorry, Finally, uh, I just want to remind you all that this is a good day for one of our deputy ones, again, a very faithful servant, David out there, who's pacing around out there. David uh, and Janet have been married 50 years yesterday, which is a fantastic achievement. So on the way out, uh, give him a big hug and congratulate him for all that he's had to put up with over the last 50 years, probably. (laughs) Right, so... After our long series on what it means to belong to one another as church family, we change tack just very slightly today as we move into the season of Holy Week and Easter. And we've just heard Luke's description of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king on that very first Palm Sunday. We know it was Palm Sunday because John says it was five days uh, before the crucifixion. All four Gospels describe the event in very similar terms, and it is indeed a very, very familiar reading. Some of you might be hearing it really for the first time today. Others will have heard it hundreds of times. And the people responded to Jesus' entry by laying their cloaks and their palm branches on the road for Jesus to ride over. And that's why you will have been given a palm on your way in today. And uh, it's a sign of welcoming a king. It's like rolling out the red carpet when Theresa May arrives in Brussels. There's always a a big red carpet. Um, And yet, yet, just five days later, when Jesus' faith is put to a people's vote by Pilate, who doesn't want to take any responsibility... Most were either nowhere to be seen when it counted, or worse, were screaming out with the same enthusiasm they show today, crucify him. What could cause opinion to change so dramatically in less than a week? Because we all make choices in life. We make choices about who to vote for. We make choices about who to marry or maybe not to marry at all. Um, We make choices in all sorts of things. Uh, And the crowd has made a choice today, but do we all change our choices with as much fickleness as this crowd today? Now, once I was walking in France uh, on the Camino de Santiago on my own, and I came to a hostel in which... Uh, there was, uh, there was, it's really just a big sports hall in which there was nothing going on and only one other person there. And although the guidebook said uh, there, was, um, there was a cafe in the village and, and a bar and a shop, all of them were Ferme Lundi. Uh, and it was indeed a Lundi, and so there was nothing to eat and drink. But all was not lost. I had half a packet of Jaffa cakes. And <laughs> 
and he had two cans of Fanta and a small packet of pasta sauce in foil that if you had a bit of water and stir it a bit was edible and we had a very pleasant evening together just the two of us and Hans if that was his name I can't remember what his name was but it makes it personal doesn't it Hans this Dutchman (laughs) Hans was a lover of all things English he said I especially love your English heroes in Holland we have no heroes Except the little boy who put his finger in the dike, and that's just a made-up story. Um, but we especially love your Antarctic brave explorers who strapped tennis shoes to their feet and went off to find the South Pole uh, in the time just before the First World War. And he especially loved a guy called Shackleton, who's not nearly as famous as some of the others. But if you know Shackleton, his ship was crushed the year after Scott's death in the ice, and he got every man home by daring do and tremendous bravery and sacrifice every man and so he told me he was a in addition to being a Dutchman and an Anglophile none of that's got anything to do with the sermon it just introduces the little anecdote um um, he he told me he was a management consultant uh, almost as good as being a pharmacist and a vicar and um one of the things about being a management consultant is you talk about leadership style and he said if you ever want to go to the Antarctic if you want to get there quickly and efficiently and win you follow Amundsen who of course you all know the Norwegian who uh by by some slightly disreputable behaviour, managed to get there first. If you want to play by the rules like an English gentleman and die a noble death so that people know your name and the names of all your friends a hundred years on, then you follow Scott. But if you want to be when disaster strikes, rescued and brought home safely with 100% certainty, you get down on your knees and you pray that that day you are with Sir Ernest Shackleton. And in the same way, many people in the crowd that day were making a choice, a choice to acknowledge Jesus as king for all sorts of different reasons, though. And so, to today's reading, Jesus and his disciples have just arrived from Jericho. Uh, It's 17 miles, about the same as from here to Bootle, and it's all uphill. And Luke says, if you read the previous uh, passage, uh, he's come straight from his meeting with Zacchaeus. He gets uphill to the top of the Mount of Olives and just before the brow of the hill and the final descent down into Jerusalem, a donkey enters the story. And half of today's reading concerns a donkey. This donkey is the key to the story. Not that actually that donkey, but the donkey in today's story. Because you can get several sermons out of this. And Steve said, don't make this a kid's service because, uh, because the kids have got something really special at four o'clock. Uh, but the messages we might do in kids' club are, it's not stealing if you have permission. That's one. Like the donkey, from the donkey's point of view, even if you think, as many people do and as I sometimes think myself, you're not really going to be much used to Jesus, you can still be vitally important. Like the disciples sent on the errand, if you know Jesus is asking you to do something, even if it seems daft, you do it. And finally, like the owners of the donkey, if you know that Jesus wants something from you, you give it over. In fact, if this was Tina, I'm going to miss the joke about uh, Jesus wants your um, whatever. Uh, However, going back to the donkey, none of those is the point of the donkey In this story, the donkey is there for an entirely different reason. Jesus is almost there. If you've ever been to Israel, you know, by the time you're walking down the Mount of Olives, you've only got about half a mile to go. It's probably, 
probably far more comfortable to walk down that hill. It's only going to take you five minutes. But he's picking up on lines that the Jews knew from the prophet Zechariah, written 600 years before. Zechariah 9, uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you see, by riding on this donkey, Jesus is saying that he's Uh, He is coming as king. And in fact, this donkey, Luke uh, Luke in verse 30 says today, had never been ridden. Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah, their God-ordained king who has come to save them. And that's why the Lord needs it. It's to make a point. Everyone in Israel knows that reference. Everyone also knows that the king is coming from the east, it says, through the east gate of the city in the prophets, as indeed the road from Jericho over the Mount of Olives does. And so it's not surprising the people began to praise God joyfully. But they had missed the other part of the prophecy. Their king is just and victorious, righteous and victorious, righteous with salvation, whatever version you're reading. Yes, of course, but who ever saw a statue in Liverpool or Manchester, of a king riding on a donkey. They ride chariots. They ride great war horses. They look fantastic. This king is coming, not in a chariot, not on a fantastic war horse, but on a donkey, lowly and humble and gentle. That's the bit that they didn't hear, and that's the bit that they may not want to hear, as we'll see. Because the city of Jerusalem is febrile. It's heaving. Some historians say there were nearly a million people crowded in from Judea and all over. Remember a similar festival six weeks later at Pentecost and that long list of countries from which the pilgrims have come. And ironically, it's because of their hated pagan rulers that so many are there. There's good roads. There's a common currency. There's no borders. There's all the bandits and pirates have been killed off, most of them. So it's very easy for people to come. And hordes have come. And they're really, really excited. And Jesus comes down the hill opposite the city on his donkey from the east. And the crowds go ape. Is this their promised saviour? For many, this is all they've hoped for their whole lives. And their parents and their parents' parents going back centuries before them. Is this the day that Jesus has come as king? To see God's holiness on earth as Israel is restored as it was in the time of David. And they cry out from the psalm. They have palms. They also have psalms. Um, They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew's account says they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Save us from all the foreign influences and corruption in this land. Save us from our debilitation by sickness and bereavement. We want to see more miracles like Lazarus a few days before. Save us from the occupation of the Romans and their crippling taxes. Save us from the meaningless of this everyday life. Lord, save us. Meanwhile, on the other side of Jerusalem, on the west wall, Pilate is arriving with his troops up from the coast to keep order. He's aware that the city is packed. 
that revolution is always a possibility, that he has fewer than a thousand troops against a million, that his head is on the block. But Pilate represents all the fears and all the power and all the transient uh, deceptive security that this world offers. Jesus is offering something very different. And today the people have chosen for Jesus. But within days they have abandoned him and changed sides. They're either out of sight when it counts or worse, they scream crucify him. We have no king except Caesar, yes, Rob got that wrong at the first service. Rob said we have no king except... Yes, no marks. We have no king except Caesar. What changed then? What changed? And I've been thinking about this all week as I prepared this. And about the times in my life, which are many, I have to tell you, where I have not followed Jesus as king in all that I am, uh, in all the situations I find myself in, and in all the weaknesses that we all, I suppose, have to some extent. Because firstly, we get two things wrong. Firstly, our faith doesn't always put God first. It's often as much about what God can do for me as it is about our place in God's purposes and about God as sovereign. Are we not prone to the same weaknesses as the crowd then? Many follow Jesus because they wanted something. Romans killed, maybe. More miracles, it does say that. More righteousness. Remember that Jesus had to correct the people who, when they saw him hugging Zacchaeus and eating with him, they were all outraged. They wanted him dead, and Jesus had to remind them, the Son of Man is here to seek and save that which was lost. Yeah, and kill some Romans. No, to serve and to save. No, no, and kill the Romans. No, no, to serve and and to save, to forgive, and to love. And as a result, when it becomes clear that Jesus isn't going to do what they want, or isn't going to be in a position to do what they want, depending on what the need was, they start to slip away. He's no more used to them. You see, to follow Jesus as king means accepting that things will not always be as we wish And some of those things are perfectly reasonable things to cry out to God for. The right, any relationship, children, the right relationship, to get out of a relationship, to be the one who's sick when other people are the ones who seem to be getting healed, to be in jobs we hate, to have money pressures all around. And Jesus showed in Gethsemane, he showed it's right to bring our needs before God But not like the pagans who make offerings before statues. Not like the people who think if you publish something in the Southport Visitor, your prayers will always be answered. Because like Jesus, the mature Christian learns to acknowledge God's sovereignty. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. The mature Christian knows that like a rose bush or an apple tree in the garden, if you uproot it and stick it in a bucket of water, it's going to be dead sooner or later. It may grow more and bloom more when it's in compost and manure. The other thing about the people is, not only do they want Jesus to do things their way, or put them in situations that are what they want, they may also not be willing to pay the costs of discipleship to surrender control 
to be the servant. It hurts and it costs even in small ways. Over the last 10 weeks, as we've heard from our, from our vicar and our curate and all the other speakers, are we willing to give? Are we willing to forgive? Are we willing to welcome? And all the other marks that involve something from us uh, are to be a follower of Jesus. See, the people of, of Jericho were not willing to hand over their judgmentalism when they saw Jesus loving Zacchaeus. The rich young ruler couldn't part with his wealth when he was asked to leave it behind. The zealots were not willing to hand over their desire to see every Roman driven back to the Mediterranean. All Jesus is talking about is a forgiving God and saving the lost. And so people began to drift away. In John's account, if you're reading this at home ever, in John's account, each of the four accounts adds something a little bit different. He says that in chapter 12 and verse 42, that even the leaders, many did believe in Jesus, but they would not openly acknowledge their faith. Why not? For fear, not that they would be killed or or chased out or anything, but just for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praises of God. And if you're, um, if you're uh, an older member of the congregation, uh, you may not appreciate how hard it is to be a young person trying to be a Christian today. If you're, if you're 60, as I'll be in the not too distant future, or if you're 70 and you say to a friend, do you fancy coming to church? They might say, might do, or they might say, mm, not really for me. If you're 21 or 15 and you say, do you want to come to church? You're going to get a lot more opposition than that. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And we have to be people who love what God wants more than what people around us want. It didn't take much to drive people away. Rather than serving a king because of this cost, we want Jesus on our terms. And it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to worship him if we're at new wine or spring harvest. It's easy to worship him um, when, when everyone is singing hymns in church. It's much harder out in the manure, isn't it, where it seems that nobody wants to hear and all you can do is behave the way that Jesus wants in a world that sometimes doesn't. One of the other things that drove people away was when everyone wanted to follow Jesus, they were happy, but when it came down to a dozen, they ran for the hills. In the real world, it gets harder. We become inconstant. And like the old song, I was cold, I was hungry, I needed a neighbour, I was frightened, were you there? And every day there are moments in which I'm sure we were not there in the way that if we were constantly acknowledging Jesus as king every day, in every situation we're in, we would be. In preparing for this sermon, I was reading about a poor Spanish town in the 19th century in Andalusia, which is the very poorest part of southwestern Spain. And for the first time ever, the king and queen of Spain were coming for a visit. And they did up the town square and they polished the statues in the church. But they couldn't, they couldn't afford a gift. And then somebody had a bright idea and he said, I know what we'll do. And everyone thought it was a great idea. Each family, each person will bring a cup of their very best wine, the very best wine they have in the house. And so when the king comes, uh, we'll put them all in a big barrel and we'll give them this barrel. When the king comes, he has 
a really wonderful present. He has a barrel containing not only the best blend of wines in all of Spain, but something that's really personal from each and every one of his faithful subjects in our town. And they thought that was great. And they all brought their their glasses in and poured it into the big barrel. You can see where this is going. On the day the king comes, he rides into town. He gets off his horse and comes up the red carpet into the town hall. He sits down and he's given a goblet and he gets up and he goes to the big barrel and he draws out a big glass of the very finest water. You see, every man and the woman in the town, having promised to bring a glass of their finest wine, had brought a glass of water, thinking quite rationally, well, it's a bit of a sacrifice and if I bring a glass of water in the big barrel, it won't even get noticed. It doesn't matter but it does. So how do we ensure that we don't drift off like the crowds did that Sunday? How can we say Jesus is king in our lives as all of us here who call ourselves Christians did at some point and then keep on saying it? How can we continue to serve in the muck of the world when we're hurting, when tragedy crashes over us, Or when it's going to cost us a lot to do the right thing. The Bible's very clear on this. And you all know the answer, as I do. Don't always do it as well as I should. Only, only by maintaining the closeness and freshness of our relationship with Jesus as we entered into on the day we chose him as our king. By the disciplines of prayer and Bible study by the disciplines of surrendering our heartfelt needs and desires before him, by asking him to challenge us and by asking fellow Christians to challenge us, are we willing to pay the cost to forgive, to give, to be servant-hearted both in church and out of it? By being willing to accept that we're not perfect. We may feel a bit of a donkey sometimes. We may feel we're just a bit of an ass, but... We still are needed in his service. In short, by sticking close to Jesus and being willing to let him shape us. If not, if we're not willing to walk with Jesus hand in hand every day and make the effort to do that, we will find ourselves drifting as soon as we can't have things the way we want or when there's a price to be paid that we're not quite willing to pay yet. This is the view that Jesus saw as he came down the Mount of Olives. Maybe not with the big golden dome mosque, maybe not with the skyscrapers, but this is the view from the position as you take the brow of the hill down towards Jerusalem. And the story ends today with Luke being told by the Pharisees to shut his disciples up. Now maybe the Pharisees just like quiet worship. It's possible. What's far more likely is uh, they hated him. He threatened their false authority and their hypocrisy. He made them look stupid. They were jealous. Maybe some of them were terrified that a riot or a revolution would start, which mean they would lose everything they have and maybe even their lives. But Jesus said, if I shut them up, if I tell them to be quiet and they obey, even the stones under my feet will cry out. God's son is here. The king has come into his kingdom, just not quite the sort of king they had expected. As Jesus later told Pilate, my kingdom 
is not like the ones that you know. It's not like the ones of this world. And they didn't like that sometimes. In the next verses that we haven't gone on to today, it describes how at that point, Jesus stops the procession and breaks down in tears. He's broken hearted. He knows and he says that in their ignorance and in their blindness, these people are throwing away their moment of opportunity to accept Jesus as king, not just superficially, but truly. And they're throwing away their moment of opportunity to change the world. He knew what would happen. He predicts in verse uh, two verses on that the city will be surrounded by armies, that a great wall will be built around it of earth, and then it will be torn down and destroyed to the last stone. And that's exactly what happened 30 years after this. And similarly, spiritually, in their ignorance and blindness, increasing numbers today in our own society have never heard of Jesus. And a a, a friend was telling me, a friend in ministry was telling me that only 3% of young people are regularly involved in church activities to hear God's word uh, explained and to hear God's kingdom proclaimed. It is very, very difficult to be young and called yourself a Christian and follow Jesus as king in your life. It's difficult for all of us, but it's especially difficult for the young. So no wonder then, no wonder that in the last verse, if you won't declare him as king in our lives by what we say, by how we behave, the stones will have to cry out. Jesus's heart was broken by the unreached, but it was equally broken by those who were willing to proclaim him as king, but only on their terms or if there was no cost. And so it's lip service rather than real change. You'll have been given a palm branch on your way in today. And uh, this is something to take away and keep and remind it that the palms uh, that they, uh, they waved on that day were turned into crosses within five days. Now, if little Pete was here or myself, I could show you. It wouldn't take us five days because we were both brought up Catholic. And if you give us a long palm branch, we can make a cross out of it in about a minute and a half. Nicer one, actually, because uh, it's handmade. Uh, and um, it took, took us a minute and a half. It took the crowd there five days. How long will it take us as we get out there to let God down? He understands that. But the cross of the psalm, uh, the palm, sorry, the palm is there to remind us that Jesus is king and paid a price and demands a choice, demands a response. Because at the end of the day, it does all come down to choices. Not just to go to church, not just by being willing to label ourselves as Christian, but to follow Jesus as king, to follow him faithfully and consistently from the day that uh, we give our lives to him for the first time until the day we are taken into his presence or he returns. To be to follow him not just when things are going well, but when disaster strikes. To follow him not just when we're feeling really warm-hearted, but when we're hurting deep. To follow him not just among crowds of other Christians, but when we're the only one there in the manure outside. Like the Spanish villagers, the only thing we need to worry about is our little cup of wine, our service, our contribution. Now, there's a, in the bulletin... I've quoted a line from Joshua at Sechem in Israel. Joshua called the people together and he said, you know what? No one has been forced here. 
If after hearing for the last two chapters all the great things God has done for you as a people, you want to choose for him, that's great. If you don't, choose another God and follow him. But make a choice and make it stick. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And let's challenge each other, and I need challenging, to stick with Jesus. Let him be king over every aspect of our lives and to seek his will. To keep the disciplines going that will keep us close to him. To be moved by what breaks his heart in our lives and in the lives of others. Um, I just want to tell, before the last couple of sentences, before I do it, I want to tell a story that, uh, that uh, I was thinking about this all week. And in, I was in Manchester for... Um, for a course uh, on Friday, I, I was taking a course, and afterwards I came out and I walked back into town, and I was sitting in the square in St. Peter's Gardens in the centre of Manchester, and I was sat down there just resting for a second, because it's about a mile's walk back uh, before I pushed on, and um, uh, I was thinking, uh, this was a nice day, the sun's shining, the wind's not too cold, it's a nice evening, um, and then some, some young people came out of one of the offices, trendy young people, and they all lit up their cigarettes or their vapours and start blowing peach-flavoured smoke in my face. So I begin to feel a bit irritated because we all have a weak point. So I move round the other side and continued trying to think my peaceful uh, reverie about the sermon and what I'm going to say. And some other young people came out and get their cigarettes out and their, their strawberry-flavoured vapour drifting all over me. And I'm just feeling irritated. And at that point, I realized that I was failing to follow God as king. Because if I'd had God in, as king in my life at that point, what I'd be thinking was, these are people who the Lord loves, who needs to hear that message, not just their blowing colored smoke all over me. To have the heart of Jesus, to be broken by what broke his heart, even though he knew what was coming. One last final thought is, it sounds hard work this, but Jesus says, it's not hard work. He says, following me is exciting, following me is fun, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and it brings a life that is fun and meaning, uh, meaningful and purposeful. No wonder the people who realize that, even if just for a second, no wonder they began to praise God loudly and joyfully. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to pray in a second while we're praying. The band will come back. Um, and while the band's coming back, uh, the prayer team is going to be up to take their places. During the next hymn, there will be an opportunity uh, for prayer about anything on your heart, any needs that, have been, uh, uh, that are on your heart, any challenges that you may have stirred in you. So the prayer team, apparently you have to say this twice or three times, uh, the prayer team will be there on the left hand, my left-hand side in a second. Yeah? Yes, thank you, thank you. Right. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together quickly. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you for the price he was willing to pay for our sins to save us. Hosanna. We thank you for the knowledge we have of that salvation in our lives and of Jesus as king. Don't let us be like the people of Jerusalem who worshipped one day and turned away within a few more days. Keep us faithful to you. Keep us close to you. Move us to see things and see the world and people in the same way you do until you come again in glory as King forever. Amen.